Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And suddenly, like, fight, flight, freeze, I went into freeze, I... I was silent. I couldn't move. Tears streaming down my face. My partner's saying, oh my God, are you okay? And I'm like, just, just quiet. I can't talk now. I'm okay. Just, I can't do anything right now. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls and the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives and what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives and that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you you What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are? Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment content warning if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast please seek a helpline in your city hello my beautiful friends and welcome to this brand new episode 
I have a special guest contributor on the Heal blog this week. Melanie Oliver is a holistic therapist and an emotional healing coach, and she has many years of experience in helping women to heal. Melanie has been on a healing journey herself from a narcissistic mother. And on this blog post, Melanie is sharing with you how I healed from depression, five tips to support you in your healing. The link to this blog post is in the show notes. Among many other feathers in her bow, Lainey Liberty works with teens to help them have a better experience than she did. Lainey's mum was narcissistic and her teens were filled with anger, loneliness and self-sabotaging behaviours. I remember the teen years as a horrible time, to be honest, myself, and maybe you did too. We are left with so many deeply limiting beliefs about ourselves. And Lainey wants us to understand that it is totally possible for us to reprogram those limiting beliefs and heal the generational wounds that have been passed down. Lainey has made a very conscious decision to parent differently to her own experience and she has a ton of wisdom to share. Please join me now for Lainey's story. Lainey Liberty, welcome to the podcast. You are a best-selling author, speaker, community leader and a teen coach and you are passionate about helping us to understand that we can reprogram our deep limiting beliefs and heal generational wounds. It all sounds so good. You work with teens to help them have a better experience than you did. You describe your teen years as filled with anger, loneliness and self-sabotaging behaviours. And to be honest, I believe that's true for so many of us. It certainly was true for me. I suppose we all believe that what happens within our family growing up is normal, but it shouldn't be normal for teens to feel so disconnected from their parents. You speak in the book, of feeling shocked to realize that your childhood was filled with countless traumas, attachment wounds, emotional neglect, and abuse. You describe your parents as being a part of the me generation. Can you tell us what that meant for you growing up? What what is the me generation and what did it mean for you? Sure. So I was born in the mid-60s. And it was really a coming of age of a generation, right? So there's a transformation from being proper and being respectful and to the exploration of self and me at the center of it. And it it absolutely was necessary, I believe, from a cultural development perspective and the accountability of connection and relationship really wasn't part of the story for my parents. It was really about them seeking their own joy. And the role of being a parent was just sort of an inconvenience for most people. People in my generation, we were all latchkey kids. It was the first generation that women were out of the house, not working outside of the house. There wasn't a whole lot of focus on attachment and parenting and, and child development. It was really an afterthought for many of us. 
the transformation from the generation before, which was very, very sort of cut off from one's emotions and one's emotional intelligence, was a step in the right direction. The, the question that most people in the me generation experienced was what makes you happy and pursue that where the generation before was you're responsible, your responsibilities are this, 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 and this, raising a family, working. And it was very sort of standardized. The me generation, which turned into what we think of as the hippie generation, right? And then into the 70s and, and 80s, really transformed the collective consciousness but for most people that were raised on the generation that I was raised, we didn't have a connected childhood. We experienced many wounds because we were either ignored, discarded, you know, or deemed invisible, which is a carryover from the generations before that. And the psychology development around child rearing wasn't really a part of popular culture at that time. So I get that, that, okay, we're all a product of our environment and we're all a product of the time that we were born and raised and lived through. And th there is a part of that, that makes me want to just sort of exhale and, and, you know, be okay with, okay, so I lived through that era. But another part of me, I want to bring the accountability back to this generation and say, look, you know, you did not support your children, you know, through strong attachments. There was no concern of the emotional or psychological scars that your absentee parenting had on your children. And there's no accountability for the relationship. A good part of my childhood was, was spent feeling invisible, like I didn't matter, like I was never seen, heard, or understood. A good part of my childhood was spent experiencing being yelled at almost on a daily basis. And all of that was just a normal part of childhood. And it was happening in the houses of my friends in the same neighborhood. And it was just a normalized experience. However, the way that each one of us internalize and uh, the patterning, the writing of the patterns of belief systems is different depending on who we are, what our situations were, and how we have expressed ourselves in those scenarios. But if you're like me, I was constantly dysregulated and I was constantly in shutdown mode and I was constantly fight, flight, or freeze. I was constantly freeze. Like I wouldn't fight. I would freeze. So for me, my biology, my psychology, that was my go-to response. 
And whether I chose to respond in that way, which I didn't or not, is not really the issue. We all come as whole human beings into this world. We all are born with the us, you know, the 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 stuff that makes who we are as individuals. We're all born with that. And so even twins, which I'm not, but if you had a twin, you know, it was born same time, same DNA, same genetics, they may respond differently in the exact same situation. So even though it was culturally common to have the kind of childhood that I had, some people you know, just ignored it and and felt attached and were able to tune that out. And other people were really affected by that. Mm, Absolutely. And I totally get all of that. (laughs) Tell me about the relationship between you and your mom. So for sitting in the seat that I'm sitting now in my fifties, my perception of my mother in my childhood was my mother was a narcissist, whether she was clinically diagnosed as such, I don't know. I doubt it, but being a product of the time and her behaviors and actions and the way that she moved through her life gives me the belief that that's, you know, she, she is a narcissist. She was also very controlling and very fearful. She was born in the the early 40s and she moved directly from her family's house to the house of my father. And she had no life experience. My father and her were married almost as a result of the I love this story of of the Vietnam War. There was a draft in the United States to go fight this war in Vietnam and there were protests and it was a big cultural movement around either fighting or not fighting or where, you know, what is your political alignment? And the draft was in the early part of the war was not happening for men that were in college or men that were married. And so the wedding of my parents happened a year before, or maybe a year and a half before the actual wedding date. So they got married legally. So my father didn't have to go to war and my parents did finally get, you know, married after the legal marriage about a year and a half later. And then it changed. They were drafting they needed more men to fight and they were still drafting people now if you were married you know you could be drafted unless you had children so I was born in 1966 and it's funny you know my son and I went to Vietnam a few years ago and I feel such a connection to the country because I am alive because of that country and you know it's really just interesting to me in that sense. I don't know if I was wanted, you know, my parents were in their early twenties. It was just the thing that they did. Surely my mother never really was the type of woman who was very 
affectionate or very, you know, motherly. She was a young woman who didn't have a whole lot of life experience and was thrusted into being a parent. And a year and a half later, my brother was born. And after my brother was born, who required more as a child than I did, apparently, you know, I felt like I was just sort of shoved to the side. And when I demanded attention, as every toddler or child does, I was yelled at. And, and, you know, I was told to be patient. I was told that your brother needs you more, needs me more. So you need to go take care of yourself. And through the messaging that I heard as a young child, it was very rejecting. I never felt like I had the secure attachment as you introduced me as somebody who was raised without a secure attachment. Well, I don't even think they knew what that was, but Mm -hmm. I didn't feel connected to my caretakers. The only way that I would get attention was by not doing, you know, by doing what they didn't want me to do. And then I finally got the focus and attention. So it was negative attention. The messaging that I got through being yelled at was, you know, you're being selfish, you're being demanding, you need to whatever you need to do, but do it away from me because I'm busy. And that sort of self-centered approach to parenting will affect children. I did learn to find my voice and I started to poke, which got me more being yelled at. And even when I hear people yelling now, my nervous system still, you know, after years and years Mm -hmm. of working through this trauma and, and reprogramming my belief system and, and coming to terms and integrating the trauma responses that I developed as a result of this childhood, even with all of that really focused work, if somebody's yelling or yelling at me, I will go into fight flight immediately and I will shake. I'll get dysregulated immediately. And so like that still is a visceral part of the me that I bring to the world. Right. And so mm-hmm. like the awareness of, you know, this doesn't work for me. I don't like being yelled at. I can't watch scary movies because it dysregulates me to like the umpteenth level. Like it's bad. And I'll just tell you a a brief story of recently something happening at last year. I, my partner and I, we went to go see a movie and neither of us knew what the movie was. We were like, okay, sounds great. Let's go sit down and watch. And it was a horror movie, which I should never be in. It was like a horror suspense, although they didn't show like the gore. And it took place in the seventies. It was like a kidnapping movie. So like everything was so familiar and suddenly like fight, flight, freeze. I went into freeze. I, I was silent. I couldn't move tears streaming down my face. My partner saying, Oh my God, are you okay? I'm like, just, just quiet. I can't talk now. I'm okay. Just, I can't do anything right now. And it took me 30 minutes of being frozen with the tears and not being able to push through it until I came out of it. And then I was able to advocate for myself. So like 
that kind of dysregulation can still happen at any moment with this kind of of a stimulus. And I'm really aware of it. And I'm really good at safeguarding for myself. But sometimes there are situations that I step into that I don't expect. And I have to have the language to number one, recognize what's happening. So I knew what was happening to me. I wasn't scared from the movie. I was 100% dysregulated. And that that state of dysregulation carried from my childhood. And the fact that I have worked with this so much, I've, I've worked to understand and, and work with the, you know, the gift, I'm going to reframe it as the gift that I was given from my childhood. It gave me that awareness of what was happening. So I didn't become the response. I was experiencing the response or the reaction. I was experiencing the reaction, which is my programming, but I wasn't that. I didn't like start fighting. I didn't yell at my partner for bringing me to this movie. I was able to advocate for myself saying, okay, I'm finally out of this. We need to leave. I I can't be in here. And of course, you know, we got up and left, but I couldn't even speak those words for about 30 minutes because I was so dysregulated. And one of the the caveats that I like to talk about that I've learned through my research and writing this book and and really engaging in self-directed healing is that the word healing is used in a way in popular culture that's not exactly accurate. Most people say, oh, I want to heal my past trauma, believing that they're erasing it. And that's not what it means. What healing means is taking the, the you know, cards that you've been dealt or the patterning that you've created you have created that patterning, not by choice, but you, your brain has created that patterning and unpacking it and learning to integrate it, to make it make sense into the you that you now are. So I know that this, the sense-making for me is I experience trauma, you know, the triggering is yelling or, or being frightened, It doesn't define who I am. It's something that flows through me, happens to me because that's my wiring. And I don't have to walk through the planet being a fearful person or a person who's constantly in reaction. I can be a person who has this patterning and I learn to use it in a way that makes sense for me, but it will never be gone. I will never erase that. So healing is not getting rid of, it's integrating. And so when I use the word healing, I want to make sure that your audience and you, you know, understand that this is the meaning that I have when I use that word. Yeah. And I've spoken to people who said, and I got to the point where I wanted to heal. So I thought I'd go off and do a few sessions and they've realized over time, yeah, that's not quite how it works, but it is. It's incredible how deeply that programming stays with us for life, isn't it? I mean, 
we're we're in those years of of developing and it just becomes a part of who we are so what what age do you think you started going into that freeze response oh early mm. yeah <laughs> early 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 and then i would internalize the messaging. And so I would cry. I would, you know, sleep with the covers over my head, lock myself in the bathroom. Like the, one of the things that I've learned, and I do this in my practice because it's, you know, I was the first person that I worked with, obviously. But one of the things that I learned is you've got your belief, the belief that comes up, it's usually anchored to a strong emotion and then the 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 anchoring of the emotion and the belief together then spawn off another belief and another emotion and you can go as deep as you can i find that when i'm working with clients and when i'm working with myself seven layers down you're getting to the heart of of that core belief strong emotions anchor the beliefs and it ties it to other strong emotions. And so from a neurobiological perspective, we've got these firing pathways. And during, you know, our teen years, we myelinate, meaning we put this coding over the pathways that that have a pattern of firing. And it then kind of like cements it. So it's like a fast track. So like this series of firing is happening because I've done it over and over and over and over. So every time I think a thought and I repeat that thought, the pattern thinking, then especially in your teen years, myelinates and it's almost like it cements it. It puts it in stone, although you can change it. So don't, don't, you know, take what I'm saying is, oh no, I'm doomed. You can change it. But but that kind of firing and wiring and firing and wiring then is a little more difficult to change when you get older. So when neuroplasticity, which means the ability to change the way things fire, it's easier to change your pattern of thinking when you're before you you like leave your adolescence. So after 25, it's more, it's a little more difficult to reprogram and our neuroplasticity is a little more difficult to sort of break out of. But in your teen years, which is another reason why I work with teens, catch it early and find a way to, to start recognizing what the, the, the thinking and firing and what those patterns are and start to reprogram it and recognize when those patterns are activated again. And one of the things that I teach teens is, and it's true for everybody, but again, I like to work with teens, is that when you habitually think a thought, whether it's a conscious thought or a subconscious or unconscious thought, you're still thinking it, you may not realize you're thinking it, but when you habitually think that thought, your brain doesn't know the difference between truth or a lie. And when you habitually think a thought, it interprets your habitual, your pattern of thinking as true. So if I constantly think I'm unlovable, 
then that's a truth. It's a, it's a limiting belief for me, but it's a truth for me. And if I go down these seven layers, most of the time I'll find one of these very common limiting beliefs. I'm not lovable. I'm too much for people. I'm not enough for people, but I can follow the pathway, which will end in one of those thoughts. And once I get to that core belief, then I'm able to look and unpack and see how my so perception or introspection is is like perception is perceiving outside of you but from from self introspection is perceiving the inside of me my story my my programming my patterns of thinking once i perceive that i can then see that it's not a it's it's like a logical fallacy it's not true it's just this thought and and strong emotion anchored me into this thought and strong emotion which then led to this one and this one and this one but holding all that up is this you know core limiting belief that is not true. I am lovable. We all are lovable. I am enough. We all are. So shifting that from a conscious thinking perspective helps you change through neuroplasticity, those patterns of thinking. Yeah. So working with teens, I mean, it must be pretty incredible to see the changes. I feel like the teen years it's such a lonely time for so many kids, isn't it? I remember just feeling so lost as a teen. I almost feel like you're just labeled teen, teenager. When I was growing up, you're a teenager now, so you must be trouble. You know, you must be doing drugs. You must be, you know, there's so much going on for a teen, like all the hormones and the changes and growing from a kid into an adult. There's so much going on and it's like, Parents don't seem to stop and say, oh, I remember when I was this, you know, let me see if I can do better. It's almost like just a continuation of the cycle. Oh, they're teen. And I hear it every day. People just yeah. saying, oh, well, they're teens now. She's a teen or he's a teen. And and so they're going to behave badly. And it's just not the case, is it? It's not the case. And I think I have a chapter in my book, which talks about the myths of being a teen. And one of them is teens make bad decisions. Teens are rebellious. Teens are, you know, always on their phone. Teens are rude. Teen, all of those. And I address them. I pull them apart. But the problem is, it's not the the myth that we can disprove. It's the fact that these belief systems are part of our cultural belief. Mm. And that's why I wrote a book about this. I want people to be armed with not only the science and the, the psychology and the neurobiology to understand why people are saying teens are, let's say, like rebellious. Let's just use that one. Well, Teens, from a psychological and brain perspective, are wired to start to individuate. And when we individuate, that means we're pulling apart, pulling away from our 
our parents, our family as identity, and we're moving into more of a social identity and social connection outside of the family. We're wired to individuate and seek that kind of connection and social learning. And if teens are, are, or if kids are parented with an authoritarian paradigm, that means that the word of law is spoken from the parent and there's no space for any other perspective. And mm. that would be something that I would rebel. I mean, I am a self-proclaimed anarchist. I don't give people power over me because I I don't give that consent. And I think the authoritarian paradigm is, is actually leading into more trauma in families, in modern families. So part of the thing that I write about, and I know your audience is not just parents, it's it's everybody. But part of the thing that I write about in my book is what does it look like to parent in partnership? And how do you parent outside of an authoritarian paradigm, right? And I give ideas on how to do it. I talk about how I raise my son actually in partnership as a partnership parent in a partnership family and what that looks like. And let me tell you, he never rebelled. <laughs> you know, what yeah. was there to bell from. So the individuation and understanding from the parents' perspective, why our teens are behaving in a certain way gives us the ability to calm our own triggers. The other thing that happens as a parent, and again, I know this is not a parenting show, but one of the things that happens as parents is if we weren't if first of all, if we haven't healed our own childhood traumas, those things will be activated when your kids are the age where you experience the trauma. So my son's teen years, his adolescence could have been very triggering for me, but I spent a lot of time before I became a parent to, you know, heal again, not get rid of, but heal, integrate the, the pattern of thinking that I brought to the relationship, the relationship between me and my son, right? So understanding when he walked away and ignored me or didn't say anything, I didn't get triggered because number one, I understood that he's processing lots happening in his brain and it's not about me. And if, if in that moment he's overwhelmed and I am you know, the least of, of his worries, I, I shouldn't make his process of growing up the stage that he's in. I shouldn't make him accountable for, for making sure that I feel good. Like he, he's got enough going on. So I didn't take things personally. And that only happened because I worked on my own you know, traumas and, and childhood wounds first, but had I not, oh boy, would those things trigger me. Right. Yeah. And so the teen years are not difficult. If you have a roadmap of how to deal with them, how to understand them, how to experience them. And 
you know, that's why I wrote this book. I am not a psychologist or a scientist. I am a mom who is a self-directed learner who believes that I can learn anything I want to learn. And I have. And when it's important to me, I do a lot of deep dives. And my book has been, you know, recommended by psychologists, PhDs, neuroscientists all over because the information is accurate. But I've put it together in such a way that speaks to a mom who, you know, is not a scientist who's like me, you know, and it's important information. So yeah, it it is absolutely. And I think the problem for a lot of people, I mean, you obviously were doing a lot of this work before you had a child. And I think a lot of people have children and they're not even aware that they had trauma. And that's what you speak about, that you got to a point in your life where you didn't realize that you'd had so much trauma as a child. Yeah. Well, as somebody who, you know, the, the introspection, that to me is really important. And in my twenties and into my early thirties, I recognized that I had patterns in my adult relationships. And a lot of the patterns were, you know, pull them close, push them away, pull them close, push them away. And that's a very classic response from somebody who has a disorganized attachment style. And I really wanted to to recognize what was motivating me. Like I could watch myself as a movie doing this stuff. And it just was like, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why did I? Yes. Why? And it took a lot of self-awareness to be able to say, okay, look, something's wrong. I don't have, I'm not engaging in healthy relationships and I'm not choosing people that can be healthy with me. Why? Why? I'm a good person. Why? I deserve to be loved. Why? And that really was a a deep dive into my belief systems about self and how I feel comfortable attaching or connecting with other people and how recognizing that I actually didn't have a model of what an intimacy looks like, healthy intimacy looks like. I didn't have a model. And so I needed to start studying and learning about what it looks like to be in a healthy attachment and how to give myself. So I did a lot of shadow work. A lot of people call that inner child work. I had to reparent myself. I had to talk to you know, young lady who was scared, who felt like something was wrong with me. I was born with something wrong with me, but you know what? I wasn't. And that belief was a way for me to protect me from the abuse. And those patterns of thinking and and making friends with my patterns or my inner voice or my subconscious, I had to recognize that my subconscious patterning was put into place by me to keep me safe. And I had to thank it when it no longer served me, but thank it wholeheartedly 
and make friends with that part of me that did that for me. And that's a totally different approach than, you know, something's wrong with me and I'm going to change it. No, there's something right with me. But if I don't need that now, I'm going to create a new way of thinking and being with self and in relation to other people. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And part of, part of the reason why I dug, you know, dug, dug deep into these topics was number one, one of my trauma responses was hyper independence. I've got a brain. I can do this. I can do this on my own. I can figure this out. I'm smart enough. I can do that. So the hyper-independence served me. It also, in some respects, kept other people out where I could have probably proceeded with support a little quicker and easier, but, you know, I could do this. I'm doing this for me, you know, that kind of drive. But I had to recognize that was a gift. That was a gift that, that, you know, this trauma gave me. And another thing was understanding that the, the way that I wanted to be a parent looked very different than the way that I was parented, but I didn't know how to parent differently. So I had to research, I had to learn. And the more that I discovered about, well, attachment theory and the brain development and, you know, all sorts of books and mentors and all sorts. Some stuff made sense. Some stuff didn't make sense, but I knew that I wanted to be a different parent, but that alone wasn't enough to arm me with then stepping into being a different parent. So, Mm. yeah. So if, if somebody's listening now and they have kids and they get triggered by their their kids, do you have advice for people on how they can deal with those triggers or what they should be doing 
with the triggers? Yeah. yeah I mean, I've got a I, so I'm somebody who really needs to have scaffolding to make the world make sense. And my scaffolding is tools. So if I'm faced with something like a trigger, I'm going to dig into that. I'm going to use my, my conscious thinking brain to try and access the subconscious thinking brain. But the first part of knowing that there's a problem is I'm aware that I'm triggered. And so the, the practice of pausing in any relationship, a relationship with self, relationship with your children, relationship with others, that has got to be at the foundation. That's the most basic thing, practice that you can commit to is pausing, recognizing that you're triggered and pausing. And then I've got a lot of tools. Okay, so if I'm going to work on triggers, I'm going to see if this is a pattern. If I'm not aware of what the trigger is, it takes some knowing that, you know, okay, so I was abused when I was a child and my belief system is this, and I've got wounds that make me feel this. Not everybody knows that right away. Mm-hmm. So the pausing and then that one of the tools for triggering is this occurred on this state, this time, here is the feeling, here is the thought, here is the reaction. And so if you can, just from a very basic perspective from somebody who's never done any internal work, that's one way to start getting familiar with the patterns. You'll be able to see what those things remind you of from your childhood. And sometimes our childhood traumas are so severe that we don't remember. It never comes into our conscious thinking mind. It's just stored in the unconscious and recognizing that that's okay too. Our brains are here to serve us and to keep us safe. And maybe we'll never unlock the why, but just the knowing that we are triggered and this comes from our past is enough. That's enough. There's nothing wrong with with you if you can't access what happened way back when you were two, that's okay. Right. Mm. So the pause, and then just from a basic perspective, trying to consciously find the patterns, the patterns will give you information. I've got tools for fear. I've got tools for anxiety. I've got tools for hypervigilance. I've got tools for all sorts of things because I need something to do. I'm a doer. And not everybody's like that too. I need something to to go to, right? Like, oh, here's the tool on this. Let me use it. And I think that if that resonates with you, then yeah, pausing. Pausing is the first thing, getting yourself outside of the situation and reflecting, using a tool to record it. And then recognizing that the trigger is happening. If you're triggered, that's not the time to connect with another human being, whether it's a child, a partner, or friend, it doesn't matter. When you're triggered, that's absolutely not the time to connect and try and solve the problem. What it is, it's the time for you to commit to regulating, working on whatever works for you. Some people it's breathing, sometimes it's 
it's a walk in nature. Sometimes it's using tools. Sometimes it's music. Sometimes it's playing with your dog. It doesn't matter whatever the thing is, but do find out and discover what helps you to re-regulate. Sometimes it's just time. And then define what kind of repair you want. And there's there's so much information about different conflict resolution styles and find one that works for you. Accusing somebody of, of doing something wrong will only trigger them, put them on the defensive. And if you have defined that your intention, your goal is to resolve the, the problem and repair, then sometimes it means you got to let go of being right and hold that intention when you come back to repair, right? When you come back to connect with the person that, that just triggered you. So hold that intention in the forefront and, and make sure that that intention is your beacon. Do not falter the path. If your intention is to repair, if your intention is to come back together and resolve it, if your intention is to make each other feel heard or seen, make sure that you hold that as a beacon because teaching moments are not appropriate here, right? You, teaching, you know, I need to teach you how to be a, a better human being. That's not going to work. You're going to model it and get get used to using tools of self-inquiry that allow you to actually go inward and, and see what's happening for you. Mm, such good advice. And it is really just very first thing is just the awareness that it's actually happening, right? And And just to be able to pause, I think that's incredible advice because I know myself in the early days of having my kids years ago just having no idea about any of this and it was just that that thing of being able to go what is going on here I used to just count actually and uh, yeah because I had no understanding of where it was coming from you speak to so many teens what do you think is the main belief that they hold about themselves what's the most common belief that they they have I mean there's there's quite a few challenges and especially from from you know a time of covid onward you know life has changed for teens and it's unfortunate this is a time like i said where they're supposed to be individuating they're supposed to be taking risks right they need to have the safety of the the safety net of the family or the world in the in the case of you know like looking at covid and it's not there a lot of times. So that that feeling of not feeling they're safe gets internalized. And sometimes it sparks a belief that there's some, something wrong with me or the, the future of the world is futile or I'm not confident enough to be one of the people who make it you know, amongst these challenges, but the internalization that something's wrong with me is very, very common. And that affects teens' confidence. I work primarily with homeschoolers and unschoolers, but the, but the general public 
you know, being forced to not go to school, which is their social outlet and social connection, that's taken away from them. Everything was wrong about the pandemic. And the teens are the ones that felt it the deepest, I would Mm. say, just because the world around them was not safe or secure and their freedom, their risk-taking, all of that, they had, they had to thwart that. They had to shut that, that natural developmental part of themselves down. And there are going to be consequences from that as well. So you, there are a lot of very fearful teens now, adolescents, and I've got tools for helping them to unpack that. And fear comes from, you know, the flip side of fear is control. And so sometimes controlling oneself in such a way is the byproduct of being fearful and the choices to control themselves in one way is a response to the outer world. And it's, it's not a great way to live. It's not a great way to pattern Yeah. And I know that in 2008, you packed up your son and you went on a trip and you started living nomadically. Why did you make that decision? Well, for us, I told you, I, I always wanted to be a parent, always wanted to be a parent. So for me, that was like the biggest you know, milestone in my life was having my son. I was just, I was just like, I always knew I was going to be a parent from my childhood on. And I was a single parent. I had my son when I was 32. And I also was a business owner in 2008 in California, where I'm from, the economy crashed. It affected my business. I worked in branding and marketing and and advertising and design and my clients started to go away because I primarily serve green eco companies and nonprofits. And I worked a lot because it was my business. I worked and worked and worked and worked. And in my mind, that was what I, that was my responsibility as a parent. I brought this child into the planet. I need to support him and I'm doing it for him. But in reality, it was affecting him. And one of the things that he said to me always was, mom, you're always working. You never spend any time with me. And that cut through my heart like a rusty knife. It hurts so bad. And when when I knew that I was going to be closing my business at the end of 2008, not bringing my staff back after the holidays, I had the inspired idea to get rid of all of our stuff and go take a trip with my son. And I asked him if he wanted to do it. And he had, he had one caveat. He said, yes, but do I have to go to school? And my answer was no, of course. And so that's why we set out. It was supposed to be a one-year journey. That was 15 years ago. We never went back to the States and we figured out a way to work a little and live and work and live. And we did this whole thing as a partnership parenting family. He was nine, just turning 10 when when we left the States. 
and he's now 24 and we are so bonded and so close and our relationship is very strong and he's a healthy independent man he also lives in mexico same town as me but not with me but we meet up for lunch and dinner and he comes up and does his laundry like any young man should but that's that was the inspiration so you know we had a bunch of of sort of like things that we were going to do to again, the scaffolding to make sure that we felt like we were safe and secure because we were stepping outside of a quote unquote conventional life. One of those things were, was we were going to say yes to each other as much as possible. We were going to make every decision in partnership, including where we were going to go, what we were going to do, how we were going to spend our money. And we, we I had savings for one year. <laughs> and then when that was gone, you know, I had to work and, and start bringing in more income. And like I said, that was 15 years ago. So mm. it was the best decision we ever made. It sounds so beautiful. What do you think is the difference between partnership parenting and friendship because it sounds like the same well I mean friendship is a part of it and in partnership different people in different partnerships bring different skills so it doesn't mean equality but it means you know, as the adult, I was the breadwinner. That was, that was obvious, right? So, okay. I have the ability to make money and support us. That's one of the things that I'm bringing to the partnership, but what makes it different than say just friendship? We had the implicit agreement that we were both accountable. We were both accountable for what we were bringing to the partnership. And that meant awareness of our internal worlds. The agreement was that he would be aware of what was going on inside of him. And when he was triggered, he'd let me know that this is not working for him. And we had to unpack and understand the role of emotions and what they, how they serve a purpose in the human experience and being able to communicate that without blame you know, I'm feeling afraid. The thing that you said triggered me, but I am feeling afraid or I am feeling angry. The thing that you did was the trigger for that. And let me share with you how that is affecting my experience right now. So that's not blaming you did this. So there was this implicit awareness of the internal worlds and that kept us safe and that kept us connected and those are the difficult moments where it got messy sometimes right so partnership parenting can be messy it's not convenient you know let's sit down and unpack this together and yes i will take 100 accountability for my part in the thing that's not very common. A lot of parents will respond with, I'm the parent. I need to just deal with adult stuff, you know, mm. and that's, that's not connecting at all. In fact, that's disconnecting. And I never spoke to Miro as if he 
didn't have the intelligence, both the emotional intelligence and intellectual mind intelligence to understand. I believe that he was a whole person. I believe that he was born with exactly all the, the nuances that made him him. I didn't need to fill up this empty vessel. I needed to support and bring out and empower him to know the him that he is. Mm. So that's not convenient. It took a lot of attachment parenting. It took a lot of connection and a lot of saying, I'm sorry, I'm effed up, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And a lot of parents don't do that. Yes. And I just feel like you you mentioned before about being an anarchist and you yeah. describe your family as an anarchist family. What does that actually mean? Well, a lot of people use the term anarchist incorrectly. Anarchist is not chaos, right? It's, you know, some people believe that it's just violence and chaos and it's not that. It is about consensually entering into relationships with others, whether it's the government, the hospital, the requirement with a school. If I agree, then that is a consensual relationship, but I'm not obligated to enroll my child into school. I'm not obligated. I, yes, there are caveats. I'm not going to break the law because that that's not in alignment with my core values. I'm a highly virtuous person. But if if something like I don't vote, I don't vote because I don't believe in the system of government and I'm not going to choose, quote unquote, the lesser of two evils. I'm not going to engage or give my consent to a system that is not in alignment with my belief system, right? I believe as individuals, we can step into consensual relationships and we don't need to have rules, rules to tell us how to act. That was one of the things that I taught my son from a very early age is we don't live by rules. We live by values. And we got to actually play with this when we started to travel because we both defined five core values that were important to us, each of us. And so that's 10 values. Then as a family, what will our our family values look like? Well, let's define that together. And we have lots of conversations. So now we know. So when a decision came, you know, that we needed to make a decision, we're going to go here, do this, we were invited to do that, or shall we spend money on this adventure, or shall we just stay put? Let's run this through our core values. That's all we need. We don't need the outer world to tell us how to live a virtuous life. We needed to be able to actually have the experience of saying yes or no. And even if it goes against the common cultural belief system, like taking my son out of school and living nomadically is pretty much against the, the conventional wisdom of, of 
you know, in my case, the American culture, like people don't do that. Something's mm. wrong with me. Right. I didn't need to feel like something was right, <laughs> you know, and, and live that way because that really was not in alignment with my core values. So I know I'm not a criminal. I know that I am not a bad person. I don't do mean things to people. I have virtues and and values and that guides my decisions, not rules or government or regulations or expectations from the culture. So that to me is living as an anarchist family. Mm. I love all of that. That sounds so incredible. I think for a lot of teens, the biggest problem for them is not feeling that they're part of something or part of a community. What's your advice on how all of us can find community in our lives? Wow. (laughs) Well, seeking out like-minded people and if community in a specific focus doesn't exist, build it, build Mm. it do anything. And I think that is the value that I've instilled in my son, because I live that and model that if something doesn't exist, I'm going to build it. If I can't find it, I'm going to build it. I didn't ask for permission to live the life that we chose to live. I didn't ask for permission when I wanted to build community around world schooling and world schooling families. I didn't ask for permission to write my book. (laughs) You know, I did it. I researched it. I just did it. I didn't ask for permission to run teen trips or to teach teens these tools. I just did it. So, and I think that intrinsic motivation can be nurtured by empowering one another to follow each other's passions and by supporting one another. Like there's always something to learn. We've got, we're carrying around this, this learning tool on the top of our head, you know, that's all it does is it learns and and expands and grows and keeps us alive. Yeah, that too. So if you are seeking community and you can't find it, figure out a way, learn what it means to build community and be okay with making mistakes and be you know, guided by your own set of values. It's really a, a wonderful way to live. And you will, I will guarantee you, you will attract community that resonates with the things that you stand for. But you got to get clarity around not only what the values are that are driving you, but why you want to create community. Mm. I love that. Lainey, your book is called Seen, Heard, and Understood. Who should buy your book? Well, parents, <laughs> for sure. It's the the subline or or tag. How, what do you call that? The, subtitle. Subta- thank you. <laughs> the subtitle is Parenting and Partnering with Teens for Greater Mental Health. Mm. You don't have to have a teen yet, but by reading this book, it'll help you as a parent. I mean, I wrote it for parents. It'll help you to step into greater partnership 
right? Partnership parenting. Even if you don't want to go 100% into partnership parenting, you'll have the tools to be able to bring partnership as an aspect to your parenting, right? Mm. And then it'll also give you the tools to reflect on what's holding you back from trusting this human being that you brought into the planet. Why do you believe? Why are you fearful? What? Where is the fear coming from? Is this fear that you have inherited from the culture? And is it healthy? Is it serving you? I've worked with so many parents of teens that that believe that their kids are going to end up in their basement until they're 45. Why? Why do you believe that? Well, cultural stories. I'm not seeing this young person, this teen act like an adult. Of course not. They're a teen, mm. <laughs> you know? I'm, you know, so like the, the belief, the projection that they're going to be that, you know, the person who, you know, is 13, who throws their shoes in the living room and never picks them up. The, the belief that that's going to carry through and, and point to them never being able to hold down a job is kind of ridiculous. But once you have a tool to pull apart, what are the beliefs? What are the, the desire below the beliefs? What are the, the belief outcomes, the desired outcomes? What am I, my mind and my brain putting into the gap to prove this fear? Because if I think something long enough, I'm only going to see the things that prove the thought. Remember we talked earlier about thoughts and habitual thinking patterns of thinking are what actual beliefs are. So if I believe that and it's a negative belief, that's all I'm going to see from here on out. You can change that. You can reprogram that and you can catch yourself when, when you have this, this belief. Yeah. Well, I'll put the link to that book in the show notes because it's such a valuable, valuable book. You have some amazing courses as well. Do you want to tell us about what you're doing? Sure. So I teach a couple of courses for teens and tweens. Teens, I teach a 12-week course where every week we have a different theme and we go through different tools. Sometimes we're talking about core values. Sometimes we're talking about purpose and passion. Sometimes we're talking about accountability. Sometimes we're exploring ideas around shadow like I introduce teens to shadow work and I think it's really important for them to really come to terms with the the things that have brought up shame for them and have tools to be able to encounter and quiet those voices so it's it's a full 12 weeks of really deep dive in community too. The thing that makes the 12-week courses for the older teens so powerful is teens for the first time in a group, in a safe space are talking about, I thought I was the only one who thought this. I thought I was the only one. And to be able to hear other teens share those experiences and beliefs and things that come up for them normalizes. Let's mm. talk about this. And so that that's a really powerful course. I have teens actually that have taken it two and three times because every time you go deeper and discover more layers of 
the onion, if you will. And then I teach a course with my son, who's now 24, for the younger tweens. And that's an eight-week course. And we take a lot of the same ideas, but we gamify it for the younger tweens and younger teens. And it's a lot of fun. So it gives them an introduction to self-inquiry through a language that they know quite well, which is games. And that's a lot of fun. And then also speaking of my son, he co-teaches with me a parenting course. We teach a course on partnership parenting and it provides tools to parents to be able to recognize when stuff comes up and, and what tools to use. So a lot, a lot of the stuff in my book is used with the parents as well in the partnership parenting courses that I teach with my son as well. So those are the online stuff that I teach. And then 10 years ago, when my son was 14, we co-founded a company together called Project World School. And over the last 10 years, we've brought hundreds of teens to different places around the world for these immersive month-long learning communities. And so it's about exploring the outer worlds, but I also interject some of these tools to explore the inner worlds while we're doing that. So Project World School is another place that you can find us. And then, yeah, that's I, there's a lot more stuff, but that that's the basic. <laughs> wow, there's so many amazing things there. Gosh, you really are making such a difference to people's lives. Thank you so much for joining me today. The work you're doing is truly incredible. I just I, I haven't really spoken to too many people who are really focusing on teens. And your son actually wrote the forward to your book and he talks about the beauty of having an authentic parent and how you've changed the trajectory of so many lives and that just says it all really, doesn't it, when it comes from your own son. So thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with us today. It's been such a pleasure. My pleasure. And thank you for putting out into the world the normalization of these conversations. It's so important. This is how we break through that layer of shame that keeps a lot of us hidden. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for doing this work. Thank you. Thank you for being on this journey of healing and community with me. If you listen on Apple, I would love it if you could take a moment to post a review for the podcast. It would mean a lot. Check the show notes for all links recommended in this episode. If you're on Instagram, follow me at my big love project and please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. Thank you for joining me. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique, your journey is unique, and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious, and I so appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining me. I'll catch you next week.